Hello, welcome once again to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and today I'm joined by Tracy Brown. Tracy is the director of Sensor charity that campaigns for more transparency and understanding of science in general, and in particular, how scientific evidence is used in policymaking and public life. So, hi, Tracy, thanks very much for joining me. Hello, great pleasure. So, Sense About Science, it's obviously a very a very prominent and active organisation. Um, I know many of our listeners, at least those based in Europe, not just Britain, will be aware of your work in many different areas. One thing that strikes me is that there are, it seems like there are kind of two prongs to your mission. So it seems from the outside, perhaps you could comment on it, at least two prongs. So one is the more traditional campaigning NGO type role where you're advocating like the value of science or I suppose good evidence generally in making decisions across the piece, in fact, but in particular in public policy. Um, but then also alongside that, you have this kind of parallel prong where you try to equip people not just with enthusiasm for evidence but also with the kind of mindset and conceptual tools to engage with that evidence understand where it comes from and and question it critique it so you're not just saying science is important as it might appear at the outset but also we need to get better at understanding and using that science what do you think of that way of putting things does it make sense to you it absolutely makes sense to me, Toby, and and I think it's also um, something that we encounter quite a lot, which is we promote sound science and evidence um, in public life as a public good, uh, not as a position in terms of funding of science or uh, everybody should understand science. Um, I, I don't believe that people should understand the laws of motion any more than they should understand uh, uh, what a sonnet is or the rule of law. I think we think of, uh, of thinking scientifically as an important public tool. Um, one way of looking at that is that you know people in authority have got the guns and the money and all that's left to the rest of us is knowledge. Um, if we want to describe the world that we're living in and how we think we should be living in that world. And so that's how we go about things, which is to think about it from the point of view of things like accountability, understanding the nature of a decision, understanding what might harm us and what might do us good. How do we describe the world? You know, how do we describe statistically, for example, um, things that we want to improve and things that aren't good enough or are unfair? And those are all important public tools. And if we as a public throw them off, either in frustration at those wretched scientists or um, because we disagree with the, the findings of research and so on, we actually throw a very big baby out with the bathwater. Um, and so that would explain to you why, you know, there's a kind of there is a two-pronged approach, really, which is that we are, on the one hand, knocking on the doors of people who are making decisions um, and asking them to base them on evidence, asking them to um, to deal in currency that we all have access to. Um, and on the other hand, making sure that we have a public um, that is putting that pressure on public life and able to use those tools to, to make decisions and come to conclusions for themselves. And I suppose you could say there's a third prong, which is making sure that our research community is also equipped to speak in human um, and in a way that actually gives people access to what it is they're working on. Yeah, so that's... I find it intriguing the way you frame it as a kind of uh, public good in the sense of leveling the playing field between decision makers and, and the rest of us, Be because the facts are th something everyone can have. It's a playing field we can all compete on, unlike, as you say, the guns and the money. And that then makes me realise, uh, given that way of framing the issue, that there's no doubt hundreds of different topics that flow from that, which we could 
due to talk about today. But we have chosen just one, and that is the topic of data science and its use in policy. So I'm aware that's quite a broad term. Um, maybe you could kick us off with a, uh, an outline of what exactly data science means, what you want to include under that, that broad umbrella. It's a very difficult thing to define, in fact, data science, because a lot of what we mean when we talk about data science is decision science. It's how, how we um, pull together the information we need for a decision. But what we're particularly focusing on is the use of modelling. And I should first say, you know, when you say there's a big um, uh, you know, range of things we could deal, deal with, and of course, that's what we feel. You know, we, we have people knocking at our door from all over the world, telling us about issues that need to be dealt with. And, and it's, it's a real strain sometimes to decide what's important. One of the ways that we do that is we look around at who else is doing what, who should be doing what, and can prompt them to do it. Um, and this, that there, every now and again, we get a subject where we just think, how on earth has this happened that we've gone so far down a path, um, you know, and in the case of data science, this is exactly where we are, where we're using it to make really fundamental decisions. And yet we have decision makers and a public and a media who feel unable to question it adequately. Um, and it's, I think, to some extent with data science, it's a bit explained by the whiz-bang-wow of it all, that this is you know, supposed to provide answers to our questions and uh, in a way that we we could never do before and of course it does you know it's amazing the, the ability to process huge amounts of information and to ask questions of things that we, we just could never put those questions before uh, on the other hand um, there's a lot of um, obscurity in it and particularly when it comes to looking at complex problems where you have multiple factors so you have multiple sources of data you're putting those together, effectively many ingredients in the recipe. We need to know how to ask about that recipe. And that's really what we're focusing on is the use of, of data science and modeling uh, in decision making. And I think kind of key areas that, that will make that very familiar to people are obviously the COVID crisis has meant that, you know, predicting and uh, understanding the relationship between different actions and their outcomes uh, is something that has meant a lot of use of modeling. Um, but climate also, I mean, climate's very big on the policy agenda at the moment. And, and again, you know, it rests very heavily on the nature of the models that people are using and the inputs into those models. So asking key questions about where that has come from and the assumptions that are being made is something that we think is urgent for society now. Hmm. Well, so with something like climate science, it is really hard to imagine the science even getting off the ground at all uh, without some way of processing, which I guess means like automatically processing the huge amount of data that you have and then reading out implications of it. Because I mean, with climate science, you're often modeling the, the climate of the whole planet, which is obviously a very complex system. But then to think about it the other way around, isn't all science essentially recording and processing data anyway, and then trying to use the result to confirm your hypothesis? I mean, there's, there's a lot more data in the model in these cases now. But do you think, or, or to what extent do you think data modeling is really a departure as a methodology from the quote unquote classical scientific paradigm? Yeah, no, in many ways, it uh, repeats many of the things, it perhaps underlines many of the things that we would always say about things. So, for example, uh, we've just got used to the idea that, that we should ask, is it peer reviewed? And perhaps even better, has there been a systematic review um, that's looked at the literature in the round? 
Um, and then suddenly we're confronted with something that doesn't go through that traditional peer review system. It may be that some aspects of the, of the modeling process do. It may be that some, um, some parts of, of the statistical work have been through peer review, but the, the use of the model perhaps being um, degenerated in one set of conditions and then being used in another, that hasn't been peer reviewed. And so that question of the reliability, the scrutiny and so on, yeah, that's an old question. Um, and it's, it's rearing its head afresh. Uh, and we need to relearn these things. There's other things to do with, you know, human judgment. You know, people can get very locked into the piece of research that they're doing and fail to step back and say, you know, does this actually make sense in a broader landscape? And, you know, you can see similarly you're advocating people to, to use a bit of sensible judgment um, in, in what they're doing. And so, so there, are, there are just questions to do with how we um, think about knowledge, how we rely on it, um, how we understand its strengths and weaknesses, and particularly its uncertainties, how we express those uncertainties. And many of those are very similar. We find ourselves, when talking to policymakers, and something we've been doing over, a lot over the last year, uh, we find ourselves in similar terrain as when we're talking about other areas of evidence. Uh, it's just rather shocking that um, these questions are uh, far less on the agenda around data science. And I think it's in part because that we've kind of got to a stage with it all where it's embarrassing to say, by the way, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so sorry, sorry to labour the point, but I'm trying to figure out how how radical this stuff is. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing the point here, but if so, just clear it up for me. So you've got your traditional scientific paradigm where you have observation, hypothesis, experiment, and then confirmation or, or, or not. And then the kind of extended scientific method of disputation and community review and peer review, capital P, capital R, and then gradually coming to theories about the world or whatever. So now coming to the brave new world of data science, I'm not quite clear how this fits into that paradigm, if, if it does at all. So for instance, you suggested that a particular use of a particular model might skip the peer review step, for mm -hmm. instance. I guess I'm trying to get at whether we need a whole new way of thinking about this kind of research or if we just need to kind of tame it to bring it in line with the methodologies we all know and love. Yes and no. So there are new, there definitely are new things that we can perhaps come on to look at, you know, the idea of having um, test data, for example, um, there are new requirements of how, how you go about things. There are different things to explain, for sure. Um, but perhaps just if I could compare, let's think about it from the product end. You know, that if you were developing a new compound for treatment of stroke or something, and, you, and you know, you'd run clinical trials, you'd do phase one, you'd do phase two, uh, you'd do phase three. And then, you know, you would publish your findings um, in a number of formats, regulatory and, and also in the literature. It would be then, you know, considered quite, um, uh, I mean, it does happen, of course, and there's procedures for this, but it would be considered quite unusual for you to then decide that this was um, a cure for uh, glaucoma and start marketing it as such. You know, whereas what we're seeing in data science is that people are developing models in one set of conditions. And then the, uh, the application of those is being stretched out to other things. The thing I would highlight most in this is that quite often, um, what we're seeing is a is a problem solving. So, you know, it, it looks very similar to somebody says, look, you know, we've got people traveling all over this big city 
And we need to predict the numbers, you know, and where we're going to have you know, fire safety issues or risks um, of crowds and platforms overcrowding and so on. Um, and we need to do this better. And we need to do it better than just jumping in and picking up a sample of those people and working out what we think they're therefore going to do on a regular basis. So we can do it better by having kind of almost real-time reports of people's movements and, and responding to those. Um, but then, you know, taking that and putting that in another context where the circumstances are quite different, people might behave differently, their behaviour might not be so predictable. And then you think, well, we need to start again in our thinking a little bit here. The question is, at what point does that happen? Um, what you tend to see is, you know, one, one authority uh, that has innovated a solution, a company or an organisation has innovated it, and they then go and sell it uh, as a solution to, to other people. You know, and we're seeing it a lot in areas of um, of decision making around resourcing, and also, um, you know, I, I think probably many people are aware that there are decisions around things like the risks. You know, for for example, which people should be um, you know, considered for early release from prison, and that those kinds of things, or who who in making an application for a loan uh, or for social security, who is most likely to be fraudulent. Um, and that sort of thing. So you see a lot of products there that are being lifted from, from one set of conditions and put into new circumstances. I see. And, and the problem is that it's based on what's basically an untested assumption that what works in condition A will also work in condition B. That's, that's right. And, uh, and I, th- I think that you know, then, then we've got other issues to consider, haven't we, which is um, that what the innovations of being able to access these huge, great data sets um, and process them have enabled is is for us to kind of go fishing in the data to look for relationships so so I think it's quite helpful when I set out on this and I was trying to unpick it as a you know someone who really you know isn't in this area I didn't bit on social statistics but it's not my area what I found really useful to think about is that you have two kinds of data broadly being generated you have data that's being generated you know, administratively and in the process of what we're doing. You know, when we walk around with our smartphones and we're generating a lot of information about where we go and what we do. Uh, and in fact, as we've seen with um, with the COVID lockdowns, um, that's suddenly become of great interest because we're trying to look at those data to see whether people are staying home when they should do. Um, and you know, what the impact is of stopping people from, from working in the office and so on. Um, but, you know, that, that we generate data like that and then we can go looking in those data to try and draw some conclusions and make some associations, find proxies for the things that we're trying to ask about, you know, like looking at uh, whether, you know, people moving around with their smartphones actually tells us whether or not they're obeying the rules. Then we also have data which is generated in experimental conditions, and that's rather different, you know, because that is data where you've actually attempted to design out some of the biases. And I think trying to appreciate that those two things are rather different um, and that they can't, you know, that they come with very, very different warnings attached is probably a really good first step for us to think about uh, were the data actually designed, were they actually gathered um, in order to answer this question? Or are we sort of opportunistically um, uh, using them? Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And of course, by no coincidence at all, we happen to have a very clear case study right in our laps, um, which is the use of data modelling in the last 12 months uh, responding to COVID-19. So we don't need to focus just on that, but, but you raise it, so it's a good one to think about. If you're trying to assess whether people are following the lockdown rules, say, and you need that information so you can make public health decisions or policy decisions of whatever kind, Surely using a proxy is better than having nothing at all. 
like uh, if, if you if you just go and ask people you aren't going to get a reliable answer so how else can you get that data without using things like mobile phone use or public transport use or whatever well that's right and, and actually I think I, I think perhaps differently from that I actually think it's a very good thing in this case that what we have is the opportunity to look at something um, when it comes to something like reported behavior um, it's been it's been really really difficult in research over the years to deal with the fact that there's a lot of error in people's recall. Uh, there's obviously bias in the way they like to think of how they behave, um, and obviously when you've got rules and regulations, people tend to uh, varnish uh, what they tell you. Um, so so there's all sorts of problems with using reported behaviour, and we've seen this in relation to um, you know compliance uh, issues, but also you know people's uh, description of what they eat. Um, and how much they exercise and those kinds of things. So, so in that sense, you know, what we can do now with data is really exciting. And, and I don't want to, by, by insisting that we have good critical questioning, I wouldn't want to in any way undermine the idea that, data's, you know, that, that data science is making, potentially making huge improvements in what we can do, both in terms of our research knowledge and our decision making. Um, so it's, it's incredibly valuable. And that, that example of um, whether we're seeing a decline in movement, you know, using Google, Google Maps data, for example, um, to find out whether uh, lockdowns have stopped people from moving long distances or making so many journeys and that kind of thing, um, really useful. It would be a very different question, though, if you were to start to rely on those data for um, deciding whether or not you were going to be punitive towards people. And then you would be wanting to ask a very different question about, well, how reliable actually is this? Um, and, you know, is it actually telling us? So we can, we can say it's telling us that people are moving around more or less. But what we can't say is whether they're moving around more or less in ways which are breaking the rules. Um, and we can't just leap to that assumption. And in fact, actually, you have seen people leaping to that assumption um, that it must necessarily mean that they're breaking the rules. Um, but, you know, for example, during the first um, phases of lockdowns in, in many European cities, um, there were shortages and there were sort of panic buying in various places and Spain had a bit of it and so on. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, people were having to go to more than one shop to try and do their weekly shopping so you were seeing the fact that people seem to be out and about moving around a lot um, but in fact they were having to do, go to three shops instead of one in order to get the week's food so I think you have to be very careful about um, about drawing those sorts of conclusions or imagining that the whole of your question is answered by the data. All right so you've mentioned various difficulties and limitations most of which seem to be in how to interpret this kind of evidence and understand its limitations so they're kind of challenges on the client side if that makes sense. In which case, do you have uh, something like a toolkit for policymakers or other people who want to make use of, of data modeling? When you're given the results of some big analysis like this, maybe it seems too good to be true. What kinds of questions should you be asking? Well, it's very difficult to actually pin it down to questions and uh, difficult in the sense that trying to get mathematicians and others to agree on what those questions should be has been a really big <laughs> challenge. Um, but for, for us, we've, we've arrived at uh, kind of three key questions and, and over the last um, sort of year and a half, 18 months, um, the, the questions have sort of borne up. Um, it doesn't obviously, you can't condense everything, but it, and these questions which open the door 
to uh, the next set of questions that you need to ask. They open the door to the three conversations that you really need to have. The first of all is where does it come from? So that perhaps covers the, the point about, you know, was it derived from experimental conditions or is it something that, um, you know, has been generated by user data, for example, therefore we might have a biased sample or self-selecting group. Um, and uh, you know, so, so first of all, where does it come from? Let's have a think about that and let's have a think about what we've, um, what we've actually done with that information, how it's been processed. Um, then, you know, what are the assumptions that are being made? So, you know, if we've put together two data sets, that was an interesting one if you look at Google Maps data, because um, you then have to say, well, actually, are we assuming this represents the entirety of the population? Or in fact, actually, uh, much older people tend not to have Google Maps on uh, their phone when they're moving around. So we've ended up with a data set that's, um, uh, that's quite different. And we're making the assumption that we're talking about all of society. Or in fact, we're perhaps talking about the most active section of society. Uh, there. So, um, so what and what assumptions are being made about the relationships between different data? Uh, are we assuming that farming practices make a particular contribution to climate change? And therefore, when we're looking at how to sort of uh, uh, bring those data together, we're making a certain set of assumptions about the interplay um, between uh, different factors, and those need to be made bare. Um, similarly, you know, when um, we're seeing applications in things like fraud detection, we need to think about what assumptions are being made um, about the relationships between particular characteristics of people and uh, their propensity to commit fraud. So, you know, there's a lot behind when we, when we sort of put the numbers in and get the answer out. But I suppose that's the black box question, what assumptions are being made. And then can it bear the weight we want to put on it? And this is important because, you know, there isn't necessarily such a thing as a bad model and a good model. Um, you know, not always. There are some things where you just think, well, why would you go about it like that? Or, <laughs> um, you know, or where the test data, you didn't bother. You know, those are, those are you know, there's things that are, are well done and not so well done in scientific practice. But there's also, it depends on the question you're asking. And, and you know, if we're making decisions about something like whether somebody can get a mortgage um, or whether they're entitled to a pension, that's quite a different decision than making idle observations about human patterns of behavior over time, whether we're all driving more or, or, or um, taking um, the train more and those kinds of things where we can afford a certain error, room for error. Um, so I think sometimes we get really great insights uh, and there's something we want to put into the mix, but we wouldn't necessarily want major policy decisions being based on them. Um, and, you know, mentioning the COVID crisis, you know, obviously that's something that people have... Um, suddenly found themselves in this position where there's a lot of work been going on in um, in, in medical surveillance, in, in um, disease surveillance. There's a lot of work been going on to try and map uh, new developments to think about um, how they affect different countries around the world. And then uh, suddenly you're wanting to put quite a lot of weight on those in trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And, and so you've seen that relationship between the research community and the policy community you know, taking many different forms. Many you know, governments are trying to figure out, are we calling these people in to tell us the answer? Are we calling them in just to kind of throw something in the pot as a mix of, of information? Um, it's been a really big challenge, I think, um, just thinking about that question of, well, what weight? And, and I think, you know, you can imagine the, the scene, can't you, which is 
that the scientific advisors being asked, you know, well, what's going to happen um, and what should we do? And the scientific advisor is saying, well, it depends. I can tell you something, you know, depending on what it is that you want to, what sort of weight you want to put on this. You know, I can give you some an interesting observation or if it's if it's the case that you want a, a, a cut and dried answer, we're going to have a bit more of a problem. And so so I think there's a, there's been a bit of, um, of a challenge going on there. That's perhaps downplaying it. It's been a huge challenge um, between between the research community and policymakers. Yeah. OK, thanks. So I want to pull out a couple of things, some of which you've mentioned and one or two that have been mentioned by other guests on this podcast. So one is about spurious accuracy or spurious claims to precision. Um, so when you have, for example, a model that claims, I don't know, 18,253 flu deaths in London this year or whatever it happens to be, right? Where, where the model is spitting out this number and is kind of taken as gospel. Um, I think in the crude version of this problem, the number is just taken as gospel. But I think even in more subtle versions, like the fact that that kind of number can be generated gives a false impression of the of the margin of error around the model or the data that was fed into it at the other end. Is that something you're concerned about? Yeah, absolutely. I think spurious precision is a real danger um, and it's um, it's very misleading. And then there's also this thing that when you start putting a number on something, it then just becomes a bit runaway and people don't sort of step back and, and think about it. I find it strange, and I know that um, this is something I discussed quite a lot with um, Peter Gluckman, the former um, New Zealand chief scientist. Um, <laughs> he's, in fact, the one yeah, who I recommend. Yeah, exactly no, because uh, um, he's, you know, and, and the point he, he he and I were discussing um, in a recent event was um, just why is it that numbers seem to encourage people to put aside their judgment? It's like as soon as you've put the number down, um, you know, it, it almost becomes a fact. Um, and it's very hard then, I mean, to chase after those sorts of numbers. So yes, you get, you get spurious precision. Um, and I think, you know, one way around that in just in communication terms, uh, I think with a lot of experimentation going on, but producing ranges, of course, is a really helpful thing to do. And I do think that the COVID statistics that many governments are producing are now beginning to experiment a bit with showing those ranges. So the calculation of excess deaths, for example, people are showing ranges. You know, there's there's a lot of interesting attempts to try and get these across to a much wider public. I think we've taken some big steps forward just in the sort of visualization of data over this period of time, simply because you know it's a different audience, it's a much bigger audience than is usually looking over official statistics and and, and medical data. Yeah, it's interesting. I, re- I, I don't know. I think these are trickier issues than, than is often realised. Um, so this obviously gets to science communication, which is a hobby horse of both of ours. So, so let's not derail the conversation too far. But um, in the interest of speculation, I wonder if part of it is that when people hear a number, they kind of assume, I mean, subconsciously or otherwise, that that, that number has some calculation behind it. You know, if you hear most people are doing X or more people are doing X than Y. Well, that's one thing. But if you hear, uh, we think about 88,000 people are doing X, well, that kind of implies a more rigorous underpinning, which you can't access, even if that's not the case in the end, right? With ranges, eh, I, I think it's really hard because at the, uh, by the very end of the, the process, when you make a policy decision, the ranges and the uncertainty that they represent has to be collapsed into a decision, right? 
It's binary. You do it or you don't do it, or else you, you choose from a list of options or whatever. So that means at some point along the process, the, the range or, or the verbal expression of uncertainty needs to become a value, if that makes sense. And I suppose what, what you need to try to do is preserve the uncertainty as long as you can through the process so you don't end up doing your rounding, as it were, too early and forget that the uncertainty existed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think you see this with election polling, actually, in particular, and I, I've fallen victim to this myself in a way. When you get an election result like the, the US presidential election, either of the most recent ones, uh, in fact, where the result looks different at first glance from what people expected, and the pollsters get a lot of flack for getting their predictions wrong, but they reply, actually, we didn't predict a single number, we predicted a range, and this result is within the range. I mean, it's not in the, right in the middle of it, to be sure, but that's the point of a range, it can be anywhere, so we got it right. Uh, and if you're surprised, then you misunderstood what our model was telling you. The US, the the the, the Clinton-Trump election were, uh, was a really good example where um, when you actually, you know, a lot, a lot of polling companies got some flack for that. But when you actually look back at what they said, they were right. You know, within the range of uncertainty they were communicating, they were right. The thing was just so, so close to call. And similarly, um, with the UK's um, referendum on Brexit, you know, it was um, people weren't that far out. It's just that the decision was poised right around the middle. So, you know, a, a small movement either way was going to take the decision either way. And so uh, I felt quite sorry for, for polling companies, uh, you know, and polling organisations around the, uh, the last US election, the previous US election, because uh, when you, you know, first of all, they were really criticised. And when I look back at their stuff, they, they'd actually communicated it re- re- relatively well. Um, obviously, it was in that febrile atmosphere where people were really keen to kind of seize upon the fact that this was showing that Hillary Clinton was out in front, and um, and that became the news headline. So the you know the error was in in the reporting of those um, for sure. Yeah, and I think in the individual internalization of it as well. When, I mean, when you ask the question, you want to know the answer: who is going to win? Yeah. And when you're told, well, it's very close; it could go either way. Well, that doesn't satisfy your your, your question. So you say, okay fine, but which way is it leaning? Yeah. And the answer yeah. to that might be, well, it's leaning towards Clinton. And then, of course, Trump wins. And then you come back complaining, hey, you told me Clinton was going to win. Yeah. And I think the crucial point is what you talk about in terms of how much we preserve that thinking. So I, whilst we can't you know, get inside people's heads and, and deal with the fact that we, we're looking for confirmation bias, you know, we're rooting for a particular outcome, perhaps, um, in a situation that's unfolding you know, wishful thinking or pessimistic thinking or whatever. There's no way of us actually overturning that. We're human. Um, But what we can do is take care to make sure and insist upon that that those uncertainties being carried through. Uh, A good example of that actually is in the the COVID planning because a lot of governments have modelled out their, their, their worst case scenario, their reasonable worst case scenario, the sort of middle you know, their reasonable best case scenario and their best case scenario. I mean, they've got kind of five scenarios, four or five scenarios. Um, and then they decide to work to one of them. So, you know, in, in uh, uh, many cases like in Ireland, they work to their, their reasonable worst case scenario. I think that was the kind of the popular thing to do. But along the way, sometimes you just kind of, the, the fact that it's the reasonable worst case scenario, which is not the, the um, sexiest title uh, when you're trying to write about it in a short news item or something, but it just drops away. Uh, and then I think the people themselves, because they're working to, to, they're sort of saying, well, this is like the number of deaths that we may see in that situation. And therefore, you know, we're going to use that as a way of evaluating what's actually happening. It just get, gets written more and more firmly in. 
as though somehow, um, it, you know, it has a, a sort of an independence and a life of its own. Yeah, so uh, a working assumption, a justified working assumption kind of slides into becoming first a prediction and then eventually yeah. a baseline. Yeah, and how we frame, I mean, you know, if we're going to kind of delve into the psychology of this, how, how we frame something in, in numbers is, is um, really, really influential. I mean, you'll, you'll be aware that, you know, the, the classic thing when you go to an expensive restaurant is you look at the wine list and uh, they always include something really very expensive on the wine list because then you go for somewhere around the middle. Um, and, you know, lots of research has shown that people, you know, people will spend another 10 euros a bottle uh, on their wine if they're given that bigger price range um, to select from. And uh, and so it kind of it tells us what's normal, you know, as a backdrop to what's going on. So if we if we're working to, a sort of, you know, this is the sort of number of deaths that we want to bring down. Well, you know, we've our starting point is already framed by that. Before the outbreak of um, SARS-CoV-2, we, we we were not walking around with a with a ready reckoner about how many people in our countries died each day, you know. So so we're, then we're being told so figures about deaths, and we don't know is that a big figure or a small figure. I mean, if everyone's honest about this, I'm sure that many people in um, leading ministerial positions in government didn't actually know whether that was a big or small figure. Uh, when they were first told how many people died in hospital. We're now dealing in some countries, we're dealing with, you know, numbers in the hundreds. And at the beginning, we were shocked by numbers in the tens, you know, but we haven't sort of registered our shock in, in a bigger way. And I, and I think, um, you know, that's the framing. We need to be very aware of how we frame. Um, when we start putting those numbers out, you talk about spurious precision, we start putting those numbers out into society. What it also does is it tells us what's normal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've I've dragged us a bit, sorry, from the, the central topic, but it, it, it's an interesting conversation. Okay, so I, I've read a bit about the work Centre About Science has done on this, and um, there's one area in particular which I find, honestly, very challenging to think about, and perhaps you can help me figure it out, or at least figure out how to think about it. Um, and it's something you mentioned already, I think, which is black box reasoning. So I think there's a special case here when it comes to a particular kind of machine learning, with regular data modeling, you can see the output. Um, and if your model predicts something weird or, or odious, like, uh, hey, you should really only hire men for this kind of job, um, you can like interrogate why the model came up with that conclusion from that data and you can fix it. But then there are algorithms that do the data modeling work with literally no model at the start. They have no input at all except the data itself. They kind of generate their own model as they go along. Um, I think there's no doubt this this machine learning process works because we have AIs that can you know beat grandmasters at chess and Go, um, which people have been trying to to program computers how to do explicitly for thirty or forty years, and they can write mm-hmm. dubious novels and so on, um, even though they've never been actually taught any of those things explicitly. And it's kind of a, a wonderful, almost magical new avenue for discovery because these free floating AIs don't inherit our existing ideas about correlations and they can stumble across connections we might never have imagined, right? But but then that also has a dark side because their reasoning is opaque. Nobody knows why the model produced the output that it produced. There's kind of no answer in principle. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you ask a chess AI to explain why it made the move it did, all it can do is show you like a complete map of the neural network it's assembled, which isn't all that of help and troubleshooting. So am I 
characterizing that right, firstly. And then secondly, yeah. is it something that you see as a worry in public policy? Are those kinds of models used there? It's a worry in public policy, but it's also a worry, actually, for some of those big organizations who have designed some of this. Because, I mean, you know, you've got a situation now where it's very difficult in some areas for Google to go back in and, and uh, alter its algorithms because those algorithms have been written not by them. Um, and so when stuff starts to go wrong, it's really hard to find out where it's gone wrong and to tweak it. Um, and I think perhaps the thing that listeners have most encounter this with, uh, unless they're keen chess players, is, is things like you know Netflix and Amazon giving you um, sort of recommended buys based on what other people um, who've also bought the same thing as you have bought. Um, and you know that's one of those things where when it goes well, uh, it's incredibly useful. You know, we suddenly remember to buy the right batteries for the thing that we've just ordered. Um, and when it when it's wrong, it's creepy. Um, <laughs> you know, and and we find it really intrusive and sort of weird. And and you know, and sometimes, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but every now and again, you you sort of have to go through a period where your Google search or your uh, recommended um, buys on Amazon or wherever suddenly seem really really out of kilter and they don't it just seems not to kind of get it right um and it's very frustrating and i and i think yeah that's that's a good example of where um the machine can start learning the wrong information uh or uh, according an importance to things that turn out to not be important and so uh because there is no discernment there about what's relevant and not what's not relevant so i think that's the crucial point to understand is that when we have that uh, free learning environment i suppose that uh, there is nothing to say that this information is relevant or not relevant and you've touched on the fact that sometimes including information may be not just an irrelevance the, the consequence isn't just that you know, I get um, a, a suggestion that I should uh, buy a, a really comfy pair of slippers that look like something my grandmother should have worn. And that's clearly wrong. But but sometimes the recommendation is quite a serious one, which is we found, you know, the, the use of algorithms in um, job applications and job sifting and that kind of thing. And the machine starts to learn uh, things about people's postcodes or it starts to learn things about where they went to school and what you get is attempts to eliminate bias class bias or uh, racial bias bias between men and women um, those things actually reassert themselves because the machine starts to identify other patterns that are associated um, you know things like for example um, women of a certain age women in their late 30s may well have taken a career break for um, children and so you'll have a career break in people's CVs. The, the machine has every reason to learn um, that there might be um, an achievement gap, you know, where somebody ends up sort of three or four years behind where they would expect to be in an attainment level. And so therefore what you get is that pattern starting to be implemented as a way of sifting. And so there have been a number of cases where recruitment uh, usage of um, machine learning has, has really gone quite badly. Right. Well, I, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a bit about what Sense About Science is doing to tackle these issues, um, in particular as they affect policymakers and the way science is used in, in decision making, because I know you're quite active there. So what, what are your most important activities and, and what do you recommend to people in, in policymaking positions who are faced with this stuff? I, I think the, the most important thing for us at the moment is is to focus on whether our decision makers are well equipped to understand this process. 
and I think you know we've we've got into some of the detail here about what kind of questions you might ask and um, and you know, there's so much more to say about that. I would like us to be in a position where those in procurement in government just don't feel afraid of, of opening those questions up. But I think there's a kind of top line thing of making people aware just how much decision making is in this domain. Perhaps the coronavirus pandemic has done us a favour in making very conscious, you know, I don't think normally government ministers are thinking about models or their use of models. Um, the press are rarely talking about them in, in this kind of a fashion. And, and so I think it's, um, it's an interesting situation we're in now. There is, there's some awareness of this, but there is still shock when you talk to decision makers. And you know, we've been talking to people at the commission and in national governments about the extent to which their own departments in government are now using algorithmically based applications on data to, to make decisions. And you can see why that's very attractive. I mean, it, you know, it suggests that there's a sort of fairness to it. There's suggests that it's, it's efficient because human judgment takes time uh, and is fallible in all sorts of ways we can identify. But I just don't think it's been, I don't think it's, it's something that's registered. You know, the economic forecasting, city planning, uh, rural services, suicide prevention, you know, uh, fraud detection, troop deployment, you know, Every single sort of department of government is using uh, data science in these different ways. And so it's something that I think governments need to get their heads around, that this is actually what's going on. I think that's a kind of, yeah, I think that's our top line thing. Because then, of course, you've got sort of, you get the nitty gritty of it, which is to say, well, do government you know, departments actually have the skills for procurement? And that's another kind of question but those two things are very both very very important um and and they really concern me yeah understood so you mentioned working with the european commission tell us a bit about what you've been doing there if there's anything you can reveal at this stage yeah I, I'm, I'm delighted to say that i'm working with joint research center um of the commission you know, about 300 modelers work across the commission and you know deep in the kind of uh, back rooms of their modeling work uh, to find that they're also really concerned about this um and that I, I think from their side you know particularly concerned because they are pushing you know they've got output going into decision making and they want to have the confidence that those decision makers know what they're looking at and also trying to lead the way a bit on some of the transparency standards i think to sort of start to set um a bit of a european wide if not international um a, a european wide standard of what kind of information you should be expected to provide in a model and uh, in what sort of format because there's no standard format for for doing this there's no you know we know how to report a clinical trial um but people don't know how to report on um uh, on models and so that's work to be done so they've been thinking about that but they're very switched on about um about the kind of challenges for policymakers and so we held a round table uh one of those places where it was okay to admit you don't know uh, with uh, some very senior directors from all over the commission and from, from parliament. And we've looked at um, how to create a very sort of snappy guidance that gives people some sort of a, a foot in the door, a way in to asking questions. 
um, it was really interesting to me that not one person turned down the invitation to come. So I think <laughs> that is that, you know, and it was very, it was a sort of quite a late in the day um, invitation to some very senior people and absolutely everybody came. And so um, that tells us something about the recognition. I don't think a year ago we would have got that response. I think it would have been seen as a really esoteric issue um, and that best dealt with by those you know, clever people in the modeling uh, CC mod in, in, in JRC. But now I think people recognize this is something that they need to get their heads around. Well, congratulations. This, this year, we, you know, we should be in a position where we get that together. So um, unlike much guidance and uh, uh, sort of policy development, it's actually moving very quickly. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm quite hopeful that we're going to um, have something in place um, over this year and that we'll be launching it uh, the plan is uh, Parliament wants us to launch it in the European Parliament uh, this year. So, and that's obviously quite top level, um, but it's a good start, I think, a really good start to kind of identifying those policy questions. And you know, reasonably, if people don't, particularly people politicians, don't go into politics because they've come from this kind of a, a background of decision making. They they make decisions politically, and um, and therefore it's quite reasonable to expect you know, to have to break things down a bit into working out what are the kind of key questions here, what's at stake. So when you're talking about some kind of Europe-wide or, as you say, international way of presenting things, what do you mean? Is this like a standard template of the information you need to publish alongside your model? So there's like a list of bullet points. Perhaps you could say a bit more about that? Yeah, so this is one of the things that's really, I think, um, this issue's been around now for some time and I think is probably the, the biggest challenge. What has happened is people have attempted to write a kind of reporting framework only to find that it's just different depending on whether you're using AI in healthcare um, or you're, uh, you know, you're doing uh, climate modelling. So trying to write a kind of detailed um, requirement for these things, you're just going to end up with something that's not applicable. So a really a kind of hot and difficult example of this is the UN was trying to develop guidance for the use of um, unmanned weaponry. Um, so this is basically where you have decisions being made about whether uh, a target is a human target or not, and that these are being made by machines. So I mean, just just to frighten everybody that bit more, yeah. more about yeah. how much this technology, <laughs> you know, this this way of thinking is is uh, developed. So the UN is trying to um, sort of run to catch up with the deployment of this kind of uh, use of um, modeling and data. Coming up with um, some guidance, well, you know, the requirements of that are going to be very, very different. And they, they found it really difficult. I think we have to have some principles um, in place that are broadly applicable and then leave it to different sectors to kind of work out how to apply those principles in their own case. Um, you know, the, the principle really, I think we can borrow a lot from, from engineering here um, and construction. So that they have been through a lot of this over the last three decades. If you look at construction, the commissioning of something is as important as the building of it. So do you know what spec that was built to? Have you tested it? You know, if you've built a new, a new station um, on, a, on a metro uh, line, how do you know that all of that cabling was the right spec for the amount of electricity for the um, volts that are going to be 
uh, through it. Do you, and how do you know that um, the distance from passengers in the station is safe? How do you know that people can escape in a fire? Um, how do you know that that ladder that's been inserted would actually evacuate people from that office? Uh, you know, it's all very well to say one person could go up, but could 200, you know, that kind of stuff. You need to know all that stuff and it all needs to be tested. And when you receive it, you don't sign that off until you absolutely know, you know, what spec and what standard that was delivered to and whether it's all been done. And yet we don't really have that in this kind of a world of, of, of data and, and software, you know, and I think we need to introduce that idea of what I suppose what we would call is responsible handover, which is the person handing it over needs to lay bare everything you might need to know. And you receiving it should not receive it until you really feel like you know where that came from and to what spec it was delivered and why. And and I think that's, you know, I'm not saying bureaucracy you know, should mushroom here, but it's a basic principle. It's like, do you know what you're getting? Right. So that isn't just client side then. That implies work on both sides, like education and recognition. Exactly. On both sides, the client and the receiver, in this case, the policymaker. Exactly. Which has resonances, I think, with science advice more generally. It's a point that comes up in a lot of the conversations on this podcast, the need for both the, the advisor, the giver of the advice and the receiver to understand what science can and can't do and how to use it responsibly. Yeah, absolutely. So Tracy Brown of Sense About Science, thank you very much indeed for this conversation. And uh, of course, I wish you all the best in promoting good sense about all this. Thank you. Very much enjoyed it. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learned societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.